0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Wagon Wheel with Jared Kimber. This is Wagon Wheel. I am Jared Kimber. There we go. We've got most of the details out of the way early on. Uh, this podcast slash chat slash, I don't know, whatever else is video, I suppose, uh, can be found in a multitude of ways. You could follow us at Spotify Green Room and you'll get an alert. You can also go to YouTube when we put them up. We're starting to almost put them up one a week, which is how many re- we record. And there's also, obviously, on the Red Inca feed, and they go up every Saturday there. But a huge thanks to everyone for coming into the room and supporting us there. Big thanks to Manscaped. Remember, you can get a discount with Manscaped. You can shave your testicles in the best possible way that your testicles have ever been shaved with Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0. If you put in the code Red Inca, all one word, you get a discount and free worldwide shipping. Do it. Supports the podcast, but more importantly, you know, it maintains your personal grooming habits and it's a very good product. And I only say that because they gave me one for free and I used it. But I've also asked my producers and they also are big fans of Manscaped. Thanks to Bodyline T-shirts as well uh, for um, all their T-shirts of which, of course, I forgot to pick one up because we're recording again today. Sorry about that. And a huge thanks to everyone on Buy Me A Coffee, who's been chipping in when they can, when they like either a podcast or a video or some articles. But most of all, thanks to the Patreons, because this podcast is made available by them. We could only afford to do one normally, but because of the Patreon support and all the patrons over there, uh, we have the ability to do two. We are building towards three podcasts, if at all pod- uh, possible podcastable and for that obviously we just need some more support but we're, we're looking for sponsors as well and and moving the podcast around a little bit there'll be might be some slight changes coming up but nothing that anyone will notice or care about that much I'm, I'm hoping but huge thanks to everyone and remember if you're on the patreon and you selected first class and above you get a chance to ask questions first like these questions first one is why did Shane will underperform in india uh, that's by will I think partly he's a bit more of a slow spinner. Uh, I think another, he probably had a similar thing to uh, other um, Australian ball spinners when they go to India is that overspin is a far more effective tool there. So I think those two are the most important ones. I think there was a particularly good bunch of Indian batters, especially in the pre DRS era. It would have been very interesting for, you know, a peak Shane Warne to go to India when, uh, the, the umpires have been trained in DRS and the LBWs because obviously the way that everyone played spinners had to change massively. So I think all those things would have helped him. Um, I do think his pace uh, was quite interesting. The other thing that people forget is that Shane Warne didn't actually take a of wickets in the West Indies either. Um, it wasn't his only region. It just sticks out because everything about India gets talked about a lot more than uh, things in the West Indies do. Part of the reason he struggled in the West Indies was obviously Brian Lara-related, also uh, Shivnor and Chandrapal. So there was a couple of very, very good left, left-handers that he had to go up against. Uh, again, the pitches could be quite slow in the West Indies, so I think that's another one. Um, and, uh, and I think because he bowled, I think he bowled about 78 kilometers an hour, which would now be, you know, one of the slowest spinners in the world. Uh, He might have been slightly high. He might have been at 80 or 81, but he was around that period. I think players who were very good at using their feet against him uh, caused him problems. And generally in that period of cricket, the players who used their feet the best against spinners were probably the um, Indians and the uh, West Indians. So I think that probably all played a a fairly big part in in what happened there. Um, It's also possible that in India specifically they... um, If you go through the history of India, you either have different kinds of leg spinners, the sort of the faster ones. So, you know, Anil Kumble with these straighter balls and um, Chandra Sekhar as well. Um, they actually haven't had that much success in India with. Uh, wrist spinners, uh, uh, tr- more traditional sorts of wrist spinners um, that we've seen in Pakistan and Australia. So I wonder if there's something to do with, uh, you know, that the, the, the pictures actually help finger spinners a little bit more. I, I don't know if that's true. I'm um, just having a look at the way that spinners develop in India. It's quite interesting anyway. Certainly finger spinners do well there. Will says, why do people assume Pakistan has spinning tracks when they often produce roads yeah I haven't I haven't had a deep look into how many roads they've done yet. I mean we've only just come back to Pakistan but they certainly have pitches that help uh, bowl, uh, that help bowlers and sometimes they have spinning pitches and sometimes they have quick pitches. So, I mean spinners have you know traditionally done very well in Pakistan. Um you know Abdul Qadir, Mushtaq Ahmed, uh Mushtaq, um who am I missing? I'm missing someone. Oh, yes Isha um of more of more recent time. So it would be silly to say that Pakistani pitchers don't help spin bowlers. They probably help seamers more than some other parts of the subcontinent. Uh, India traditionally, although not recently. Um, Sri Lanka definitely. Um, so I, I think they do sort of get characterized into that. But also, as you, you saw in that particular wicket, uh, you know they can be quite slow and low and um, unresponsive. And I suppose on those sorts of wickets, generally you end up going to your spinners anyway because otherwise you'll kill your quicks. So even if they're not always uh, ranked turners the way that some of the other um, uh, pitches are, um, you still you have to rely on your spinners a lot more in Pakistan than in other places. Chris says, could we have another West Indies in cricket in terms of grouping nations participating as one to try and make waves at the top level? Using Scandinavia as an example, you could have five countries, it's funny. I, I get que- uh, asked this question a lot. I don't know if people know that uh, the Irish team is, is two different nations: um, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So, I mean, straight away we have, we, we have another um, situation when we do that. There's nothing to stop us in cricket from doing that. The only thing that would ever stop us in cricket from doing that is really would be the Olympics, uh, because going ahead, uh, you would have to. It would be trickier. I mean, the the Caribbean islands are going to find that out um, when they uh, try and qualify for the Olympics, right? It, it's a different situation; they're not really set up to do it. That said, at the Olympics, we'd also have Team GB instead of England, wouldn't we? Which would be another one of these teams that you're talking about, Chris. But yeah, I don't I don't think there's anything stopping anyone doing it. I mean, the fact that the West Indies happened and now Ireland have happened, kind of just. Feels like it's a cricket thing. Um, very weird compared to other places. Obviously, I suppose you've got the—is it the British Lions um, in in uh, the the Rugby Union? I know they don't play in the World Cup, but they obviously uh, go on tours together. So it seems to be a thing that happens uh, in cricket more than other sports. Um, so I don't see any reason why we couldn't have a Scandinavian eleven, or what else could you have? You know, oh, oh, the other one uh, was uh, a East Africa. Which is, who was in that, was that Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda? No, I'm trying to remember now. I should know that because I've looked it up recently. But, yeah, that you know, the, um, I think that was Rwanda Rwanda and Uganda. Uh, anyway, uh, they played in the World Cup. So we've had, what's that? Off the top of my head, three versions of it. And if we had the Olympics, we'd have four versions of it. So it's certainly something that happens, Chris. I don't know how much it will happen in, in the future. It's politically, I mean, the West Indies shouldn't exist, Right. Politically, it's been a nightmare. The um, uh, island have managed to keep it together, but there's certainly people. Uh, would there, there's certainly a pull between the north and the south um, at times in, in Irish cricket. There's absolutely no doubt of that. But so far, they've managed to keep it together. But I would think that's the main reason why it wouldn't happen is no one would be happy. <laughs> Sandeep says, "What to make of the new MCC rule that if a batter is out caught, the new batter will come at the end of the striker?" was that why this rule changed now? Uh, I can't think of the old rule being deliberately misused. Now, this is a very, very good question. I'll tell you why. The old rule wasn't misused. But the old rule, realistically, wasn't benefiting the person who did the good work, which was the bowler. Previously, I don't think it mattered that much because you don't have that many sky catches in test matches, right? So it didn't make any sense. From a T20 or a one-day perspective, here's the best way of pointing it out. So I don't know if Trent Woodhill devised this, uh, rule in the 100 um, that's become a law um, in all cricket. But Trent Woodhill was the first person that I ever heard talk about it publicly, and I actually talked to him about it privately quite a bit as well. And he was saying, you know, let, let's say you're bowling in an IPL final and you've got the opposition seven wickets down and it's RCB. I don't know why they're in this final, but they are. You've got the opposition seven wickets down uh, or six wickets down and you take your seventh wicket. At one end, AB De Beers is off 40, off 15. And at the other end, the guys basically um, hit the ball straight up in the air. And now A.B. De Villiers is on strike and has the ability to attack you. Why should you be penalized for taking a wicket? And that's what was happening towards the end of games. Uh, it's a bit like the sacrifice bunt in, in uh, baseball. Tail-enders especially were almost having a free swing. Because worst case scenario, they'd get the, the good batter back on strike. And best case scenario, they might be able to hit a six, right? But if it did go straight up in the air and they got caught, well, at least they'd get the good batter on strike. That's really not what should happen. If you've taken a wicket, you should be getting, you know, if you're a bo- if you've taking a bowling wicket specifically, um, runouts are obviously a little bit different because it's the end you're running at. But if you're taking a bowling wicket, you should definitely get a benefit of that. I don't think it will affect test cricket very much at all. I think that we'll have some very big impacts at the end of T20 and one-day games where you might see extra wickets fall because tail enders will come in and continue to face rather than getting off strike. I'm a very big fan of it. I think most of the changes they made, the, the change, the tweak to the wide law um, was overdue. Um, I've certainly been talking about that for about 10 years. Um, uh, you know, Taking the man card out of unfair play, obvious uh, one. I'm trying to think what else they did. But, yeah, I have had a bit of a look at it. I, I don't think I'll get a chance to do a video on them because uh, there's so much uh, cricket going on at the moment. But I was a pretty big fan of um, all those changes. Uh, uh off the top of my head i'd have to go back and check if there's one i didn't like oh the saliva one if they use the science for that then i'll back the science over uh you know my own opinion on saliva i mean i'm all you know as a general rule in life i'm often spitting on things less ian says uh, thanks to your podcast with john norman about shane warne um hypoth- hypothetical question. <laughs> Uh, as you said, prior to the ball of the century in England, Warren had an unspectacular start to his test career and Graham Hicker flogged him around at the tour game. So how different is Australia cricket um, in the nineties and two thousands, if Warren got smashed out of the side on that tour? Uh, Do you think McGill gets more caps? Do you think uh, Australia, a spin? Uh, It it is interesting. One thing I would say, and I I happen to have Shane Warren's stats here because of that, uh, because of the previous question is even if he, even if you got hammered in England in that first series, I think they would have continued to go with him. And the reason is I think he'd already taken wickets. So he'd already taken the wickets against Sri Lanka in, in that last test. He'd then taken the seven foot against the West Indies. And then he took an absolute bucket against New Zealand as well. So he took 17 wickets in three tests in New Zealand. Um, so I think even if that's the case, I, I know this might sound silly, um, uh, and he I don't know, averaged forty five in England. I don't think that slows down the war train. He uh, certainly would have come back to Australia. Uh, I, I mean, Australia was his best surface, right? Um, I think when you watch him bowl, other than other than maybe bowling in Sri Lanka, uh, which really suited him as well, you know, I, I think Australia he was almost at his most dangerous consistently. Even if he had some better records occasionally when he toured. Um, so I don't think that hypothetical can stand up. Um, if you do, if you were just to say, look, but, but we could do it a different way. Let's just say he got injured before he even played against New Zealand. So he took the seven um, uh, got gets injured. That's when he has his first finger injury, his first shoulder injury. Yeah, I think McGill would have come in and out. I think he would have been mistreated. I think McGill, McGill was even slower than Warn. So he would have really struggled occasionally in, in some of those Asian tours. I think we know from uh, McGill's personality that I think he would have really struggled to be the frontline Australian spinner consistently, uh, especially when the bowlers were so good. Um, I don't know if people really know that much, but if you go back to Steve Waugh, Steve Waugh sort of pushed Warren to the side a little bit. Uh, you know, it was more about the pace bowling. He was less interested in Warren. He almost used Warren as a stock bowler at times in a way that Border and, and Taylor had used him as the frontline striker. So if that's the case, I think McGill would have had an interesting career. You also have the Colin Miller period as well, uh, which would have been very, very interesting uh, without, uh, well, without Warren consistently, although sometimes Miller played without Warren. But would he have played more? Would he have played earlier? Would they have got rid of him as quickly? It still would have been a fantastic team because you still would have had McGrath and Gillespie, um, Fleming when he was fit, uh, and Brett Lee uh, available to them, plus the, the backup sort of bowlers of Rifle, Kasperwitz, Bickle, Uh it was still a fantastic team. Uh, Tim May as well. There was a lot of very good bowlers around at that time, plus the batters and the fact they had Gilchrist, which was a big point of difference. I think without Warren, Gilchrist probably about six is one thing I, I would say. I think they would certainly would have tried all-rounders a lot more without Warren. Um, but, yeah, it's a very good question. James says, Recently, many commentators suggest the part of England, uh, the solution to England's woes is to bring back cricket in state schools. However... England doesn't have a local club structure similar to that of Australia. Uh, wouldn't that be the sensible target for directing resources? Okay, well, f- firstly, you I always believe that you have to go back to where people are producing cricketers. And England is producing cricketers in schools, just not in um, schools that are government-funded. So I honestly do believe that those sorts of models are very, very important. Secondly, I don't know how you force a club structure on club club structure is really a societal thing i would have thought i could be wrong um here james but i would have thought that it's a societal thing i always believe that the best thing to do is to work out how you are producing cricketers and um support that and i think at the moment uh the asian cricketers are coming sometimes through those tape ball competitions you know those sort of um secondary competitions i would be supporting them Um, and I would be supporting the school system because I think if you look at the history of English cricket, that is where the majority of cricketers have come originally from state schools and private schools, but now just private schools. So I think if you want to get cricket back into the state schools, that is a very, I I can't see that as being a negative, James. I think if you spend a lot of money on the club system, just don't know that that is the perfect way for England cricket to survive. It's, you know, the Australian club system is so strong and so big and so, um, You know, I mean, Mitchell Stark plays in 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 that. Joe Root's not going to go back to Sheffield Rygate and play a game. It's a different kind of club system, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. So, even if you beefed up club cricket in England, which I assume you could, I'm not sure it's going to have the same impact that it would ever have in Australia, just because it's not set up to be the same thing. You know, you get picked for your um, your first class teams because of your performances in club cricket, more or less, in Australia. Um, that's not the English system, and uh, the way it's set up, I don't think that would ever be the English system. Um, so it is quite different um, in that particular way. Johnny says, what do analysts look at when deciding who to buy select for a cricket team? Um, are they ever looking at the same stats as fans, like average strike rate, etc., cetera? Um, or are they only looking at stats that are far more complex? Look, it's very different for everyone, Johnny, I'll be honest. Um, I don't think... Uh, <laughs> One thing I like to do is I want to know the quality of an overall player. Uh, I will quite often look at that first-class average or first-class, um, yeah, first-class average of a player, especially if I'm looking at bowlers, because I want to know if they always take wickets everywhere or if they're just an effective T20 bowler, because I want to know, you know, in days when I need wickets, are they going to be able to make wickets happen? Those those sorts of things. Um, so I certainly use average there. Um, uh there's so many advanced metrics out there that i don't think outside of maybe your top three i don't think you'd look at averages that much um you're really looking at the advanced metrics of you know uh, how many runs per innings are they worth more to a team than than that Uh, you've got runs above average metrics you've got expected average metrics all those sorts of things but it probably depends on individual analysts. I, I would hate to say that no analysts look at that. Strike rate is far more important, but having said that, you know uh, the true strike rate that I have, which some analysts use, is way more important than normal strike rate, of course. Coaches and owners certainly look at normal stats a lot more and are far more interested in that. So it still becomes part of the process. Um, but I wouldn't want to speak for all analysts, but I know a good, good deal of our analysts do not do that. Um, a lot of analysts don't even worry so much about that. They're looking at... Um, you might look at average or strike rate, but for a period of the game, um, and you might u- still use those normal metrics in that period, just because that's what, you know, legitimately that's what you're looking for. Thanks for that, Johnny. Andrew says, who are you backing tomorrow's Marsh Cup final, Australia, right? <laughs> What I'm assuming he means Western, uh, Western Australia or New South Wales. I haven't watched a ball of, of, of the Marsh Cup um, uh, tournament so far, but any team with Berendorf, if he's fair, I'll go for him just because I like it. And Anmol says, is there any other board who is as bad as the BCCI in running their women's cricket? I think you need to look at my recent video on Sri Lankan cricket, Anmol. <laughs> and can women's IPL be financially sustainable as a standalone tournament? Yeah, well, Pakistan were terrible with their women's side as well. Bangladesh has recently done some really good work with theirs. Um, uh, South Africa were terrible for their women's side for a very, very long time. Um so yeah, BCCI not on their own. Where BCCI is on their own is, I think in 2018 I had this conversation with this guy on Twitter, and I was I was saying it is ridiculous the BCCI does not have an IPL considering the money that is in the uh, women's IPL. Sorry, the money that uh, and he said, ah, oh, in two or three years they'll they'll have it they'll have it for sure. Um, that you know they're just getting everything right. And I was like, they can have it now. I would sell this to the BCCI as a nationalistic thing. If you actually had a women's IPL and we you had the top hundred. 200 Indian women uh, paid for correctly uh, you beefed up your domestic system as well so maybe you had 400 from semi-professional all the way through to fully properly paid professionals i really think that Indian women would dominate cricket for a very very long time uh, very quickly and and at the moment that's not happening and you know it's misogyny. It's also bad business sense because it's, I can tell you one thing that I learned during the hundred, which is how much certain companies just want to advertise with women's sport. Um, it's stupid. And if you know, it's a, it's a, it's an easy gain, um, early on, uh, to get a lot of, uh, extra marketing money. It, it becomes tough, uh, further down when you do get more professionals. I mean, the WNBA is uh, one of the best examples of, of, of a league that is struggling to bring in its own money. Um, but we haven't, I don't. I don't believe that's the case. So much so um, uh, with the, with the women's hundred and the women's big bash, they have been able to get their own sponsors and they have been able to move towards prof- you know a better version of professionalism quite quickly. But yeah, realistically, um, the women's IPL, uh, even if it's not financially sustainable, as you said, um, it doesn't matter because they're making so much money. I think it could be financially sustainable. I think in India, you could certainly make a lot of money from it. Um, it it's usually f- from the market, from, the, from what I've seen, it's the uh, sponsors that usually uh, do better for you than the streaming and the TV rights for women's sport. But it doesn't have to be financially sustainable, I think is the most important thing and more, um, because the Big Bash wasn't financially sustainable when it started, the men's version. Uh, the 100 was not is not financially sustainable. The PSL was not fi- financially sustainable. All of these tournaments, the cricket boards invested in them because they knew eventually they would be sustainable. The women's IPL would eventually make a lot of money. And even if it just became sustainable, that would be huge. But it's a potential for being a lot more than that. Um, and uh, with the amount of women who watch the men's IPL, I just think it's a stupid thing to not have another product available for them. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I can't think of a single good reason not to have it. Uh, thank you, everyone, uh, in Patreon for your questions. And we'll go to the chat where we have our favorite handle, Hydrogen X. Hey doing, mate?
1: Yeah, India is currently playing Sri Lanka. And after that, <coughs> quite an easy schedule, except that one test in England. And if you look at the current England team, you might think that's also an easier test. So, we saw in the recently concluded first test. How do you think about other India's chances to go to the WTC final?
0: We've already done the video on it. If you have a look at the start, I picked Pakistan and India um, to get there at the start. I mean, there's nothing strange. I was looking at the schedule when I, I came up with that.
1: Yes, but in that video, you selected India for winning the New Zealand series 2 0 and winning the South Africa series. but. Uh, we, lost, uh, we won the Oceans Series one zero 0 only, and mm-hmm. we lost the South Africa series. so.
0: You, you did. I think, I think I'm about one and a half tests behind, but I was also quite conservative on how India would go um, all the way. But I also had them coming first, I think. They only need to come in the top two, right? Look, I haven't gone back and had, had a big look at how the, the results have gone uh, so far. Obviously, I wasn't expecting to get every single test or every single series completely correct. Uh, losing away from home, uh, but, but even in the, in that South Africa series, they still want to test away from home. Sorry, is what I meant to say, which is very important. Uh, so I'm not particularly worried. I mean, there, I, there aren't that many other teams that have good schedules. They legitimately – like, it, let's say – and I, I, th- I think this is probably fair to say that Australia is probably uh, – Australia and New Zealand are two of the other strongest teams – they just don't have the schedules that it's going to allow for as many wins um, as Pakistan and India do. So I'd be I'd find unless, unless Australia or New Zealand completely play out of their skin, like if New Zealand had, had won that um, series against India or, or won a test in that series against India, that's the sort of thing that they would have to do um, in order to get up there. I mean, there just aren't that many good test teams in the world. So I suppose South Africa could go on a bit of a run, but looking at the schedule I just don't believe the other teams are strong enough to to be able to get the wins to go past um, India and Pakistan at the very least I still expect India and Pakistan to be in the top three teams um, maybe one of them will slip out because someone else will, will go on a very good run but for me really don't I, I really don't have that many fears that India is not going to make it to the WTC uh, And by the way that I don't think any that England test doesn't count in that that does it or does it I'm, now I've I'm confused does it count in the WTC?
1: Yes, sir. it will be countered and it will be played in July, the 5th place.
0: Because it started after the final last time. So, yeah, you're right. That's another chance of them getting another away win, as you said. But, uh, you know, I think all things considered, I mean, who are the teams that you're worried about? I mean, give me a team that you're worried about doing well. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that uh, there has to be another team that has to do better than India, right? Uh, well, two teams that have to do better than India. Pakistan are a chance, but Pakistan, um, uh, you know... I. I I thought Pakistan were the more tenuous of the two teams that I had in the World Test Championship final. Um, uh, Australia still has a lo- still has a long way to go and a lot of tests in Asia uh, in order to be able to do it. New Zealand has a much tougher schedule. Uh, South Africa is an interesting one, but, uh, you know, having just done the batting numbers, they, you know, their batting is so weak um, that I can't, cons- I can't see them consistently winning test matches. So all things considered, it's not... You know, India might have slipped back slightly from uh, my more bullish um, suggestions, but I don't think that there's great teams um, around the rest of the world who are going to uh, cause too many problems. Uh, thanks for your question, though. Siddharth. Hello. Hey, go, mate. What's your question?
2: Yeah. So, my question is today you appeared in this video about, video about the West Indian ballers and how they're mm-hmm. doing better in 80s era, where they had probably the best fast bowling unit of all time. And it just got me thinking. So, before the four ballers that their assembled. Uh, they had Lance Bates, of course, which was probably their greatest uh, spin baller, without a doubt. And But how did they manage to get those four ballers and play? Con- I know that uh, we had you know significantly less matches, test matches in those days, so the ballers mm. didn't have to ball that much. But for four uh, for fast ballers, three of them probably genuinely fast, you'd say, and Joel Garner, all of them bowling in, a day in day out for five days how did they do that and i mean well, see four bowlers bowling 90 over.
0: well they didn't bowl 90 overs a day it was west indies who invented our current crisis with overroads um you know they were bowling 65 overs a day in some days um they completely slowed the game down so they could bowl the four fast bowlers uh don't forget that viv richards carl hooper uh quite often bowled very very quickly at the other end um off spin when they had to Certainly got through some overs that way on, on occasion. But also they didn't, their tests didn't last five days as as much as other teams. So that that helped them. They, they also had a very good um, backup system, right? Um, you know, a lot of that a lot of their bowlers were um uh you know, the the fifth or sixth or seventh best fast bowlers uh were incredible. Uh, so Roddy Eswick, who's their current fast Fast bowling coach or bowling coach is, um, I think he's got a first class average of 22 in, in, um, for, for Barbados and never actually played a test match. So it tells you that even their backup bowlers, you know, um, Sylvester Clark, Franklin Stevenson, um, those, I'm trying to think who else, um, you know, those sorts of players were absolutely incredible as well. There were heaps of Eldon Baptiste. There are absolutely heaps of them. That were, So when they did have an injury or uh, a bowler needed a rest, they could bring someone else in. But the, the main point was that they slowed the game down so much and they took so many wickets um, that they could do it. Um, but, yeah, I think they were all genuinely fast. I don't think, I, I think Garner wasn't genuinely fast, um, if we're being honest. So um, I think they were all genuinely fast in that period. And the way that they did it was by slowing the game down, essentially. And it was probably bad officiating as much as anything else and maybe bad lawmaking that allowed them to get away with that far more it was far worse than it has been today um, but it, teams do it for a similar reason today right um, you know you want your fast bowlers to be as rested as possible um, and there were some very very long overs uh, back in, in those days of, of, of cricket and um, it was uh, it was not ideal I suppose it's the best way of putting it
2: uh, one more yeah sure yeah, so the current Indian test team, you know, the Bowling Island they have they have probably their best spin-off all the time in Ashwin, and they have the best left arm baller, Jadeja. And with that they have two quality test match uh, medium fast ballers in and Shami and boomer. So uh, looking through all the great Did you just call Bumra medium fast? Fast medium. <laughs> Not medium fast, fast medium probably. Yeah. Uh, but any anyway, no, but he hurries people, so that's different. Yeah.
0: I mean, he's fast. He may not be expressed, but he's fast. There's no doubt about that. I wouldn't want to face him.
2: Yeah, all right. He's not, but he's not in the Pat Cummins and Kagi kind of things. Anyway, but so looking through all the great bowling attacks throughout the years, the West Indies didn't have a spin, as we just discussed, and even going through some of the advanced, invincible teams, invincible teams uh, may have, but is this one of the best all round bowling attacks of all time. Like the five uh, Bubra, Shami, Ashwin, Jadeja, and you can add Siraj, Mesh, and Dev.
0: Yeah, well, Australia never had, uh, Australia only ever had four bowlers, didn't they? So, by definition, I think India has them covered. As you said, uh, West Indies never had a frontline spinner. Having said that, they didn't need a frontline spinner. So. <laughs> You know, it's a bit like saying, uh, you know, oh, that, that, that football team has um, extra attacking midfielders and, and they, they weren't very good at defending, but they still beat every team by three goals, right? I don't, it, it, it's a tough one, uh, you know, depending on how you look at it. But again, they didn't have an all rounder. Uh, the Invincibles, I, th- I think we have to be a bit realistic with the Invincibles. We're talking about one series uh, there, um, or a couple of series, I suppose, but compared to consistent, they did have a fairly good, because they had Keith Miller. Uh, they did have a, a fairly good team. I think the team that would have been the best and might have actually pushed India's all-round uh, bowling lineup would have been, had Australia, had World War II not happened, and Australia would have been able to match up, Clary Grimmett, uh, Chuck Fleetwood-Smith, Tiger Bill O'Reilly with Keith Miller, um, Ray Limel, um as as uh, that attack like that a five-man attack where you have a left arm wrist spinner um two of the best um leg spinners of all time and and all-rounder who can bat at number four um and also bowl as fast as anyone in his era and ray linwell um that would have been next level also um i'd have to go back and have a look at if any i don't think australia ever had a, a truly great bowling lineup when they had richie benno and Alan davidson together Trying to think, um, but again, having those two all-rounders in your side—if they—if they could have got the extra bowlers around—but I don't think they did. So I suppose hypothetically, the Australian War Eleven uh, would have been as strong as the current um, Indian Eleven. But if you're looking at, at having five bowling options, I can't—you'd have to go back and have a look at Pakistan when Imran Kadi, uh, when Imran Khan was batting top five and Abdul Qadir was in their side. I don't think they would have had it as often as India, but they probably, if you look at that five bowlers that they could have had, they could have had uh, Waka, Wazim, Imran Khan, uh, Abdul Qadir and uh, Safras Nawaz. Maybe, maybe, maybe he was a bit finished by that point, actually. Um, I'm trying to think of who the, uh, who the other bowler would have been, but that would have been a pretty good bowling attack, right? Um, And they dominated. They were brilliant. Um, uh, You know, we we don't give the Pakistan team of the 90s, I'm sorry, of of the 80s enough credit because West Indies were still slightly better than them. But that Pakistan team was absolutely destroying teams at times. So I would have thought that, period of Pakistan cricket would have been one because you really need the all-rounder, right? Jadeja is what makes this the great all-round bowling attack because otherwise, you know, it's not that much better than the West Indies or Australian bowling attacks. But the ability to have a fifth bowler in there um, gives you incredible um, all-round, um, uh, you know, versatility. The only other thing I would say about the Indian bowling attack is um, it obviously doesn't have a left arm arm um quick which is not not bad i think if you go back to that war team i was talking about before um of australia you know the hypothetical australian team that wouldn't have had a left arm quick west indies did only had right arm quicks um uh, and australia didn't have a left arm quick in their period um but you know uh, that's sort of nitpicking at the absolute perfect bowling lineup but i think the indian one has to go down uh with that um but But if you're looking over short periods of time, uh, I wonder if Pakistan maybe um, did slightly better um, at times. And obviously, India didn't need the all-round nature of their bowlers because the four were more than enough uh, for them to dominate. But yeah, I do think uh, India's got an all-time bowling attack. And I think I've I've said that many times before. I don't think Indian uh, Indian fans have become so... uh, Indian fans have basically become a little bit like Australian fans did in the early 2000s, where nothing's ever good enough um, and it's like do you realize how much better you are than most other teams uh, and i think part of that has come down to the fact that they've lost a few of the finals but if you're looking at it just from a team perspective they're phenomenal thanks for that set off, carrot diggers yeah i'm on how you doing mate what's your question yeah i'm good i've got a question about uh, grade cricket in australia i've heard you say previously
2: oh. that um it's declined in the last 30 years But um, I'm wondering if it's because of professionalization of football because I reckon, I've looked at this before, I reckon there'd
0: be Mm -hmm. about 80 AFL players at least who would be playing great cricket regularly in Melbourne. Yeah, South Australia and Tassie as well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's played a part of it. How old are you, mate? 20. All right, so I'm 40. When I grew up, the most important thing was uh, on a Saturday for a lot of people that I grew up with in the outer suburbs and my country friends were even more so. They literally, on a Saturday, you went to the sporting club and everyone played it and it was the biggest thing. Uh, by the time I was 15, so 1995, we had, a shopping, we had about three shopping centres in my local area. We had none when I grew up um, and people went to the movies and they went shopping and they uh, went to arcades and everything. I think that has played a very, very big role in uh, you know diluting the talent out of club cricket in in Australia. There's just more things to do. I, I had a friend actually I, I, talking about Aussie Rules football, who he 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 played. Um, he he won the under 18 medal the first year they had it um, in the in the under 18 competition, playing for Northern Knights. And him and his brother were both absolute gun footballers, cricketers, tennis players, whatever. By the time they were about 25, 26, they'd stopped playing sport. And the reason was they were like, we spent our whole life on Saturdays playing sport. We'd now rather go watch a movie or, you know, fish or whatever. So I think the culture of Australia changed. And so, you know, back in those country towns that, that, you know, that my family grew up in, I spent a lot of time in, you know, on a Saturday night, it was like, the netball club, the tennis club, the cricket club, even the football club was the thing to do. And that wasn't the cat. That wasn't, you know, now there are boutique bars, right? <laughs> and you go into Victorian and New South Wales places and you've got, you know, beer cafes and you've got, you know, fa- you know, family fun pubs and all these sorts of things. So I think the culture changed. But you're also right. I think in general, I think cricket's actually. Personally, cricket's come back because of the amount of money that the players have made in the IPL um, and through the Australian team and through the big bash has changed. We had Alex Keith. Yeah, I mean, Alex Keith is a really important cricket person, despite the fact he, he ended up being a failed cricketer. He because he was the better first before, person. He's a cricketer. Yeah, but he was the first person to choose cricket over Aussie rules football, right? Before that, everyone else, like Shane, we only have Shane Warne because he, he was too short and too slow, right? Uh, Brad Hodge. We only have Brad Hodge for a similar reason. Sorry, Hodge, um, if you're listening. But but there's a lot of guys. You know, Ricky Ponting is a, is a fringe one. Ricky Ponting's dad said to him, "Mate, uh, I think he played. I think he played a game. He played a representative football game. And he said, look, if you're too good here, um, you're not going to make it.' Matthew Wade. There's another one. Um, Jamie Siddons. There's another one. Even Simon O'Donnell to a certain point. So I think you're right. But I think now there are people. Mitch Marsh, Alex Keith certainly had a choice of doing both. But you're also seeing the professional nature of Alex Carey and Alex Keith sw- swapping sports, right? Because if yeah. you because the, the systems are so good, if you have someone like Alex Keith or Alex Carey in Aussie rules football or cricket and they fail in the other sport, you can still pick them up and know that they're very good athletes. So I think you're right uh, to a certain degree, but I also think that the societal change in Australia is what has made club cricket a little bit weaker. Um, but I think now there's been there's been a pushback I mean, you know, what we're really talking about, mate, is that there's only so many professional athletes, right? So, uh, 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 are you from Melbourne? Yeah, yeah, I'm from Melbourne, yeah. So, I always always used to have this fight, fight with my mates. I always said that Aussie rules football is the absolute worst thing for Australian sport, right? And I, I'm from Melbourne. I played it from a kid. You know, I still follow the pies. You know, I love the sport. Don't get me wrong. But what it does is it basically takes the best talent away from our Olympic athletes, our basketball athletes, our cricket athletes—the uh, sports that we actually want to go around the world and be really good at. And we've got, you know, what what sort of a point guard would Buddy Franklin have been? Sorry to everyone who doesn't uh, who doesn't follow Aussie rules on this on this. List. But you know, and and we've seen it again. So Josh Giddy had to have the, had to make the decision between the NBA uh, or basketball and, and football. And 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 Mitch Marsh was another guy that that, that had to do this. We could potentially be. Losing losing incredible athletes because, you know, they, they go off to play other sports. So I think Aussie Rules does do, certainly does do that. Um, uh, and and it's not like, you know, as you and I both know that, you know, I'll use Buddy Franklin again. He is an all-time athlete and probably could have, you know, could have played any particular sport that he wanted to and been absolutely a brilliant at it. Um, and there's certainly been a lot of, I mean, I, I'm actually going to do a piece and funnily enough that you mentioned this on Aussie rules impact on cricket. Cause it's had a lot of positive impacts on cricket around the world. Um, because it was the first time it, it basically brought professionalism into cricket because cricket had to compete, uh, with what we with what the footy was doing in, in Melbourne specifically, but also in, you know, Adelaide and Tasmania and Western Australia as well. Um, So it's really, really interesting. But the sorts of players uh, that that we've missed out on over the years that we know probably could have come to cricket and should have come to cricket from a, you know, they will play international sport perspective, but haven't. So I I think it has a big impact on it, but um, it's, um, it's had some positives in cricket, but it certainly had some negatives, but I I don't think you're wrong that it might've weakened that, but I think club cricket was being weakened just because of the way that Australian society was changing, but it's still, it's still a really big thing. And and I'm sure in some of the smaller country towns, especially, um, you know, if all the, I mean, I I remember I, I I played tennis to a very good standard and gave up tennis basically because I got bored of it and I didn't, I don't, didn't love the sport, but I picked tennis back up because in the outer suburbs, one of the great places to meet girls was at the tennis. Just playing club. tennis. <laughs> right. And it's like playing cricket and footy's is great, but it's like, you know, basketball and tennis is where, where the girls were. Right. So yeah. I'm not sure if that, if they, if they if, in country towns, especially where you, the tennis, basketball, netball, Football, cricket is all um, rugby u- league in, and union in some places. It's all in one place. If there's still a draw towards that, but I think in the suburbs, you're more likely to find the girls probably in the arcades, yeah, right, or the or the movie theater, or you know, walking around the shopping centers and everything. So I do think things have changed a little bit. But a great question, mate. Thanks so much for that. Cashu, you there?
1: yep Hi, Jared. Long time.
0: How you doing, mate? What's your question?
1: I'm good. I'm good. So I uh, heard your uh, podcast with John on Shane One. So John in detail told, you know, how he reacted to it when he was in the train, when he got the news. So if I may ask, what was your reaction?
0: Like what were you doing when you got the news? I was doing podcast business. Actually, I was, um, I've been, we've been asked to join a new podcast network, which we haven't quite finalized, uh, but we might be coming in with. And I had a really long chat with someone because I'm very interested in the podcast business world. And, and he obviously knew a lot about it. And then right towards the end, he said, I think you're going to have to go. Shane Warns died. And I was like, oh, that can't be the case because I know that because my phone would be lining up and I forgot that it started the meeting very professionally. I may add, I put my phone on do not disturb. <laughs> um, so I took the do not disturb off and I, I, he was right. I had about 90 messages, people trying to verify the story, uh, you know, uh, to people telling me, to people asking me if it was true. So, I didn't believe it partly because when i was first told i you know i hadn't seen it myself so uh, my first thought was that my second thought was trying to verify it i verified it very quickly um luckily mark nicholas well not luckily but mark nicholas had spoken to the family so we knew it was true so that made my life a lot easier because a a lot of times what happens when you know famous especially someone like that there's so many fake deaths how many times has jeff goldblum died on the internet right i think it's quite a lot at this point so you know the first thing is the verification the next thing was i was thinking that i had a quite a relaxed weekend um and then that was gone and i was in shock for a, quite a long time i did uh, did talk sport i think i was on lbc in the uk um, I, I knocked back a lot of the uh, um stuff uh, straight away just because i didn't have time to process it then i did sky sports news sky sports news was like my last one i so i don't know how many media places i was on but i was probably on seven or eight but sky sports news was my last one and i probably did them all in a space of three hours right or four four or five hours maybe and it was really after i did that last one and i sat down in quiet It was the first time i wasn't writing or doing a video or doing stuff and that was the first time i started to process it and what happened was i realized that shane warne is the last cricketer i had a relationship with my father with if that makes sense so I left Australia in 2008 and Warren obviously retired in 2007. And from 2008 onwards, my relationship with cricket completely changes. You know, uh, I'm not based in Australia anymore. I'm a cricket journalist and I see the game very differently. Up until that point, you know, even if I had analyst ten- tendencies and journalistic tendencies at times, I was still very much a fan. And that was, Shane Warren was the cricketer I went to watch with my father, uh, you know, changed my relationship with my father in some ways. And having that sort of lost link uh, to my father, you know, it was was probably where I felt the biggest pain. I, I wasn't particularly close with Shane, the, the person. I obviously met him, you know, quite a few times, interviewed him, um, uh, occasionally had drinks with him, um, you know, chatted with him in press boxes and everything. But, you know, I didn't have a relationship with him that I did with Dean Jones, for instance, who obviously died. And I, I knew Dino a lot better than I knew Shane. Uh, so it wasn't a personal connection, but, you know, in some ways it was a very personal connection as you might've heard in previous podcasts, you know, I grew up under Shane Warne, very much under Shane Warne in more ways than one. Um, and as a cricket person in, in Melbourne, and, uh, you couldn't get away from him at that point. So he was always involved with my life and had been from the age of what, 12 until 42. So I lived 30 years with Shane Warne in a very, very close way, you know, privately cricketly and professionally. Um, and so, but but weirdly, yeah, the thing that really hit me was the the, the link to my father um, and cricket had sort of been separated more by by Shane's passing.
1: Yeah, I mean I can relate to uh, how you reacted a bit because I was watching Batman and even my phone was on D D mode. The moment the movie ended, I just walked out of theater and you know put the phone back on normal mode and. Twitter was literally, you know, shaken up by that. And mm-hmm. I literally forgot everything about the film. <laughs> I, I went into this, this shock and, you know, I forgot what I just watched and, you know, I was completely taken aback by it. So, so yeah, just a follow-up question. Uh, mm-hmm. So since then, I've been seeing a lot of people sharing the Strauss ball as ball of the uh, century. Just want to ask you, why does uh, the Gatting ball have the title of ball of the century who gave it to it because if if you just see visually like you know the straws ball has more of a shock value that you know how can he turn from outside off to the leg no. stump
0: I mean the the, ba- the basic thing is that getting gatting ball had already been called ball of the century, so and also the Strauss Ball's from a different century. I think part of the ball of the century thing was that cricket had evolved for ninety years and then we suddenly get something like the the warm ball. I don't think the warm ball to getting probably is the ball of the century. I think I think Uzman Adin might have done something on a was a delivery. Um, but it probably has to be Was a or Shane Warren, just because they were the biggest outliers, I think, compared to any other great bowlers that we had. Um, and we didn't really see Sid Barnes. Sid Barnes would probably be the other great outlying bowler and um, we didn't really have. What Shane Warne did didn't exist before. So I think there was the shock of that. I think it was called the Ball of the Century just by the English press at the time. I can't remember, uh, remember the exact journalist who gave it its name. Um, I should remember that, actually. Uh, but you know I think it just became you know a, a very very a quickly a, a nickname attached to that ball I don't think it's probably in Shane Warne's best five balls I think if you go through everything as you said uh, I mean the one thing I would say is the Strauss one is affected by the footmarks now he still had to plan it and he still had to do it he still had to execute it still had to did the stumps right but um, th- that is the one difference there, but there was a lot of great balls from Shane Warne. I think it was the impact of that, and also then the impact that, that Shane Warne had uh, from that point forwards that sort of cemented it. Um, but it's a nickname. I don't think I don't think it was ever really official. And what was quite interesting is that so I did a tweet about the Strauss ball straight away. Up until Warne passed. I wouldn't have thought that that, or, you know, maybe the Bazard Ali ball or the Shivnor and Chandra ball, ball, you know, there was a lot of great, incredible deliveries. Um, Herschel Gibbs one as well. I don't think until he passed, people like started really analyzing him. He's, he sort of moved beyond analysis at a certain point, became a celebrity, um, and cricket content, I suppose. And in his death, I think people really started to go back and look at what he did. And, um, That's potentially why the Strauss ball sort of rose up at that point. Um, uh, Also, it's worth mentioning on the Strauss ball that his arm and shoulder were gone by that point. Like, not gone, obviously, but they weren't what they were. You know, the amount of rip he puts on the ball in the early 90s compared to what he was doing in the 2000s is not even comparable. Um, So from a physical standpoint, the Strauss ball is remarkable. Uh, But thanks so much uh, for your questions. Uh, Alex. Yep. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, what's your question, mate?
2: So I'd just like to ask about Yorkshire's John Verston. So in the back end of the Ashes series and yesterday, before yesterday in the West Indies test, he looks like he's actually turned the corner for once and found some form that looks sort of sustainable. Do you think that's the case? Or do you think it's just another purple patch and a blip in his career in Red Bull Clip?
0: I don't think he ever had form. I think what he had was it took test cricket a little bit long, uh, a little bit longer to work him out. And part of that reason was that generally he's quite good in the, where you bowl to test bowl uh, batters, right? So outside off stump, even at off stump length, uh, back of a length. uh, He's quite good in most of those regions where he's not particularly good, which we found out very suddenly and very sharply was if you bowl consistently full and straight at him. Problem is that why bowlers don't do that is that's a half folly length on the stumps, right? Um, I think that he's either I, I was talking about I had a really big chat on TalkSport actually with Matt Pryor about this yesterday, and we're trying to work out if what he's when he, when he first came back, Alex, and he was trying to fix that problem, he, he he tried to hit everything to either straight or to mid on, which basically meant he didn't score very much because that's where you have fielders, right? And so bowlers would just continually go at the stumps until eventually he'd get frustrated and he'd try and flick one across the line and um, he'd be bowled or LBW again. Some of this, people go back to the footwork issue that he had with ODI cricket. I, I don't know how much all this is mixed up. What I do know is that at a certain point, bowlers worked out bowling full and straight at him was the best way to get him out. What has happened in this brief period that he's come back, and it is a brief period, is that he's found a way to score from the full and straight balls, which means that you can't put consistent pressure on him enough. And he's not missing them at the same rate that he wants. That might be a technical thing because he's closed off his front foot a little bit. Um, it might just be that he's got away with it in a couple of test matches. Um, uh, it could be, it could be, you know, um, that he's going up against bowlers who think they can get him out normally. I, I don't know, but I will say that West Indies did seem to bowl quite straight to him and he, and he did handle it. I think uh, Freddie Wilde gave me the stat that, um, Since he's come back to test cricket, he scored 54% of his runs on the leg side. Beforehand, it was 40%. Again, small sample sizes, who knows. But it feels like, to me, he's getting off strike when they're bowling full at the stumps, which is part of the the problem. If if you think about it, his full at the stumps is the same as everyone else's um, uh, balls just outside off stump, right? And the best thing to be able to do with the ball just outside off stump is to be able to get off strike from it. So, you know, Joe Root hits it to point and backward point. Uh, Kane Williamson hits it to third man, uh, Steve Smith walks across the line, hits it to uh, square leg, and and um, uh, Virat Kohli punishes if you get it slightly wrong through the covers. That's what you have to be able to do, right, to be able to um, uh, skillfully manipulate that. So in, in Bairstow's case, if it's full and straight, he has to work out how to get off strike so that someone can't bowl consistently full and straight and, and try and get him out LBW and bowl. Um It feels like since he's come back, that's what he's doing. I think it might've been Freddie as well who told me that he doesn't get bold as much now and um, it's been more LBW. So even that he's taken away one full, you know, version of, of that. If all that holds up, Alex, then yes, this is very much a, um, this should be a permanent form. Um, And if it doesn't, uh, then, you know, very quickly we'll see him miss a bunch of straight ones and he'll go out again. Um, I don't know is, is the best way of saying it. I think that, that for me, He's England's third best test batter. Now, having said that, that's, you know, not exactly praising him. Uh, I mean, Extras was England's third best batter, right? So, um, but I do think he's the third most talented. I think when you look at when he goes back to county cricket, how much he dominates, he's on a completely different tier. Um, I think he's a better player than Joss Butler. Um, And so I think he's worth persevering with. And if he has worked out this problem, um, I think you even give him a bit of a rope. If, If he can average 35 in the next three years considering, sorry, i just booted my camera here. Uh, if he can average 35 in the next three years, I think that is just a huge, huge thing for English cricket uh, because they haven't been able to find people who've even been able to do that consistently. Um, but if he can do more than that, then that would be remarkable. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. All right. Last question is Gregory Paul.
2: Hello.
0: How you going, mate? Last question. Knock it out the park.
2: Uh, so my question was uh, regarding body shape. Like, Fast bowlers have to be like lean I and tall and I remember somewhere the batsmen having a lower central gravity is not a useful So, What are some of the other like different body types that give are that
0: advantage? Uh well I I did a video about this once. The absolute best wicket keeper would be someone with short legs and a huge wingspan. And that's because you want them to be as low to the ground as possible um, for when they're up at the stumps. But you want the big wingspan for when they're back so they can dive and and cover extra ground for you. I mean, fast bowlers do come in many different shapes. Obviously, I think the ideal would be someone with a very strong core who is, well, Kyle Jameson is the ideal. (laughs) Um, You don't want want tall and skinny, uh, perhaps, uh, just because of the injury uh, concerns that that can bring about. Um, so you want to be a little bit more solid through uh, the centre. But we've had fast bowlers with very, you know, I mean, they used to be the big fast bowling backside. You know, think of Brett Lee. There's some great old English bowlers who had that. Um, even Ryan Harris, I suppose, um, had that because it gives you a different kind of power through the crease. You know, with spinners, you want longer fingers. Uh, what else do you want with spinners? You want oh well. In fact, with all bowlers, you want hyper extended arms. I don't know if you're ever watching the video. Of this you can see that I've got double jointed elbows. I used to have them on both sides until I busted the other elbow. But hyper extension of the arms is very important. I think Jofra and um, Jasper both have that off the top of my head. Uh, I don't I don't know if you want double uh, double jointed wrist as well. But I'm assuming that would be quite handy. Very very you know on wrist spinners. You pro- Shane Warne's probably, you know, um, shown us that you want to be as strong as physically possible throughout the chest. So you want, you know, um, you want the big shoulders and the uh, um, there for the uh, for the spinners. For batters, what you want is a very very strong back. One of the reasons that you, when you talk about the low center of gravity on batters, that was always the, the the thought. But don't forget that came from a period where the ball kept low a lot more, which doesn't happen as much now. We have more short pitch bowling, so. Uh, that has sort of changed I don't know I don't know if anyone really believes the low center of gra- gravity for batting anymore in fact it seems to be going towards taller batters but what you do want is someone who has very very good core and spine um, set up because hunching over a bat for hours on end does you know we've seen michael Clark uh, Mike Atherton um, certainly have problems with that from a batting perspective the other thing that you want is, you want your front eye to be dominant um, seems to be something thats that we're learning. Uh, when you have your back eye dominant, you have, yeah, which some batters do, um, quite often ends up you end up having to uh, twist your technique a little bit. And Rory Burns is probably the best example of this. Uh, but I, I've heard talked to other batters who've said similar things. Um, so, yeah, so I think those are the sorts of the major sorts of different kinds of body types or body advantages that you can get uh, in in certain kinds of players. Um, uh, I think core strength is probably something that is really important right across every part of cricket. So people with abnormally good core strength, um, uh, you know, sh- should be able to find a role in cricket if they have other skills that can match that. Um, I don't know how you work out if someone has abnormally strong core strength, by the way, just punch them in the belly people did to Houdini, I suppose, but um, that is certainly one that when you look at the physicality.
2: Uh, do I have time for a follow-up question?
0: Yeah, yeah, quick one.
2: What do you think of some of the uh, real anomalies? Because uh, my, the first thing in my head is like Chahal seems like really small for a bow, uh, leg and, uh Yeah, Chahal basically. So who do you think are some of the exceptions?
0: Sorry, you just cut out. Was that Chahal, you said? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so with leg spin... You really want to get the ball over the batter's eye line and then back under the batter's eye line if possible, if you're a flighty leg spinner. If that's the case, then being short actually helps. I've noticed that a lot of leg spinners in their teenage years, when they have their growth spurt, actually really struggle with leg spin. They're really good until the age of 15 um, and then they really struggle. I had that personally, but I saw much better leg spinners than me go through very similar things. <coughs> so there can be advantages to being a shorter wrist spinner specifically. Finger spin, you probably want to be taller if if at all possible. Um, you know, stretch yourself. Uh, what what are some of the other advantages? Uh, so, outliers would be, you know, um, having an abnormally low bowling action like Malinga. Uh, you know, Mitchell Stark, Shaheen Afridi, Marco Janssen being six foot seven left armers. It's hard enough to find a left arm bowler to find someone who's six foot seven and then is also 85, 90, 95 miles an hour um, is a huge, huge advantage. Um, I think we, uh, you know, Kyle Jameson is a very, very perfect uh, uh, one there. Batting, traditionally, as you said, short batters were thought to be better. But if actually, if you have a look at it, I think KP, before DRS came in, KP, Shane Watson, uh, Matthew Hayden, with their huge front steps, was an incredible advantage. Tom Moody probably was not in the same level as those guys as a batter, but used his height. So brilliantly, I think he made that 75, 80 first-class 100s, Tom Moody. So having that that step was, uh, was very good. Also having very quick feet. Neil Harvey was obviously uh, very much known to have uh, incredibly quick feet, um, is again um, a very good. O- also, you see that batters with – this might be a core strength thing, but it might not be um, – with abnormally good balance. Um, Mark War, Damien Mann, VVS Laxman um, – uh, players who even when they're out of position, because their head um, is in such good position, um, they can still play shots that other players can't um, uh, because of their their balance, their, their their physical balance. So that's obviously a very good one. Having abnormal, uh, um, so most professional batters have a slightly higher um, eyesight but not as much as you would think because a lot of what they're doing, but having the ability to, so Graham Gooch, for instance, would give advice to other England batters, say, well, you could see at the top of his mark, he's doing this with his fingers. And I think it was Nasser Hussein who said, how can you see what he's doing with his fingers at the top of the mark? He's, you know, 50 meters away from me. Um, so having that, I think, is a very important uh, thing. Uh, uh, brain elasticity is very important um, as well. Um, so, you know, if people have the ability to have better brain elasticity, it means that they can think more because a lot of what they're doing is natural, um, within their game. So it means they can probably think more tactically. I don't, again, I don't know how we, we work that one out. Um, uh, quick hands is still a really important thing for wicket keepers and batters. Um, you know, uh, I, I know in basketball, uh, that's a really big thing of seeing how quick people's hands move. I don't know if we even test for that in cricket, but we know it's a very important, um, secondary skill. Um, uh, changing direction, uh, you know, the way that you run between the wickets um, is obviously, uh, you know, it, it, we don't need someone, we don't need Usain Bolt. We really need that. I'm trying to think, is it Shelley and Fraser price who always has the best starts in, in the sprinting? Uh, you know, we really need someone who's quick over five to 10 meters, not someone who's quick over um, uh, 50 to a hundred meters uh, when we're batting. So that can be a huge advantage getting out of the blocks very quickly. Um, yeah, uh, those are some of the ones that uh, 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 you know. Uh, eventually, it will be the ability to you know to maximize height or minimize height, um, uh, you know, with different kinds of actions. I think will be very very important going ahead. So, those are a few of them. Uh, thanks so much, Gregory, and thank you to everyone who came in again and ask their questions remember if you came in halfway through the spotify green room uh, you can go onto Red Ink and you can listen to the full podcast and this will be up on youtube as well but huge thanks to everyone who came into the chat and also everyone who helps us out on uh buy me a coffee and most importantly the patreon that's what pays for this particular podcast but also to manscaped who of course uh, uh, sponsor us at the moment uh lawnmower 4.0 put in the code red inca get your discount but huge thanks to everyone who came and everyone who listens to the podcast in general And we'll talk to you again next week.